You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Paul Constable, an optometrist and researcher. Paul's journey into autism research began with his son, Miles, who was diagnosed at age three. Faced with testing challenges, Paul explored retinal signals. Inspired by Ed Ritvo's pioneering work, his dedication led to groundbreaking study and advanced signal analysis methods. Today, we'll delve into research on utilizing eye signals and AI for quicker and more precise diagnoses of autism in children. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you. So, Paul, one thing I'd love to be able to do is to give our listeners a, a little bit of a flavor of who you are and what brought your passion to the field. Because a lot of people who get into research and get into practice around autism, there's a personal experience that led to this. And I'd love to hear your story. Yeah, it's it's quite a long story, but it's, uh, you know, it all began with, certainly I was living in London, just started the PhD and I was looking at, at eye diseases in a completely different, different field. And our first son was born, Miles, and he was a very sort of quiet boy and we thought he was, you know, didn't complain very much, but he had this fixation with opening and closing doors and switching lights on and off. And one day the health visitor came around at the age of two and said, look, he doesn't really talk very much. And we were like, oh, he's a boy. Boys are always a bit slow with their, you know, with their language. What, what, what do you expect? And she said, no, 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 he really doesn't talk very much. And of course, she sort of um, suggested we, we we get a referral and, and send us off to sort of some counselling to try and develop his language and so forth. And, you know, it was true in a sense. He made very little eye contact. He never spoke our name. He referred to us as this one or that one. And so the signs were always there, but we we, we didn't know. Our, our parents were overseas. We had no grandparents. We had no sort of reference point for what's what's normal in a child. And so at the age of, you know, two and a half, three, we finally got to see the 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 pediatrician and the psychologist and the 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 assessment. And we walked into the assessment naive and went for a coffee and came back and said, we're going to do some stuff with Miles. And they came back and just said, oh, look, your son has autism. And it sort of hit us very much out of the out of the blue. It wasn't on the radar. We didn't know what autism was, really. We didn't have any understanding of what what the future might hold for Mars and what this all meant. And so that then sort of began, I guess, the, the search for me personally into, into what is autism and how how do we recognize it? And the question I had in my mind was, well, what what happens next? Will he ever read? Will he ever sing? Will we ever play football together? You know, what's is this the end of the world, so to speak? Everything sort of came crashing down. So I wandered into my PhD supervisor's office in the next week, probably looking a bit glum, and said, oh, look, you know, Jeff, you know, my son that I've shown you the last, you know, photos of the last two or three years, his family's got this thing called autism. And and Jeff was 83 at the time. He'd been working in vision science you know, for centuries, it seemed. And he just turned to me and said, well, dear boy, maybe there's something to do with the brain. We must look at the electroretinogram because, you know, he knew that people with sort of cortical or, or neural problems in the brain also often had sort of signs in the retina. 
And this was perhaps, you know, patients with Parkinson's disease, they have changes in the retina. And so this was sort of the link. And so he then introduced me to a lady called Dorothy Thompson at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. And, and, and we began, in a sense, trying to, to record ERGs or electroretinograms, which are the signals from the retina in, in people with, with autism. But at that time, back in 2005, to record one of these tests, you needed to put an electrode on the eye, you needed to put drops in the eye to dilate the eyes. This was all very uncomfortable. So it took a while to get ethics and we could look at sort of adults really only at, at, that, at that stage. And so things sort of stopped there because we had a very small study in sort of 2016. It took us to get everything going in about 12 adults. And we replicated some of the very early findings of a, of a guy called Ed Ritvo, who mm-hmm. way back in 1988 did the very first study at UCLA into a population of children, I think in, in Utah and, and LA, and, and discovered some differences in the signals from, from, from the retina. And, mm-hmm. and that was the only study that had been done up until that point. It had just been sort of gathering dust in the wilderness, I guess, because no one had been able to do these tests in children since, since, um, since then. Yeah. So that, that's, that was sort of the, the, the beginning of the, of the, of, of the studies in, into, into the ERG. And it was really, you know, the, the questions about how do we improve the diagnostic process better? Mm-hmm. For a parent, and just understanding, you know, we sort of left the we left the consulting room, you know, days. Here's here's a leaflet, here's a phone number, here's a phone number to go and call the National Autistic Society, and that sort of led to, then you know, the search for a school. What does it mean? Nursery school, primary school, and and you know, we we sort of you know, you you realise, I guess, then as a parent that you're on that different journey. You know, the other kids were growing up and getting toilet trained and learning to eat and going out and having parties and we were sitting at home with miles suddenly the invitations dried up there was no more invites to the school to the to the friends birthday parties because miles was just sort of you know his behavior was a little bit different so i sort of thought that that then led sort of i guess a sort of a separate area of interest in sort of how do we help these children and and as an optometrist i was sort of thinking well and you might recognize i've, I've got a big Prescription. I wear glasses, and I think any parent who wears glasses probably thinks I must get my son's eyes tested. Maybe they need glasses as well. And I'm, I'm the optometrist in the family. I should be able to test my son's eyes. And and but it was just a it was just a very fearful experience. Just to, to, I couldn't consider taking my son to somebody who would be able to communicate with him or understand you know what his needs would be in a, in, a, in the consulting room. And I and, and and around this time we were looking at at, at schools and. There was a a special school, I guess you'd say, in, in London called Queensmill, and we thought Mars, that was an autism dedicated school. And we thought Mars would fit in there, and they came to look at Mars and said, "Well, he's not bad enough for us." <laughs> and then we thought, "Oh, okay, that's that's probably good in good in a way." So he sort of ended up in sort of mainstream school, which is good with with support. But but when I visited this school at, in in Queensmill in London, it was sort of the, the children there who had two to one carers and were very nonverbal. Miles was quite nonverbal. You know, he had, I think, he started to speak when he was about the age of eight, and got out of nappies about then as well, and started started to started to develop some some skills then. So he was always about five or six years behind the the pack, but not as bad perhaps as these children that were, you know, in in this school full, full time. And so I began doing eye tests on these children, and then started developing strategies for 
testing children with, with, with poor communication because that was sort of, they care about because I, I finally took Miles in for an eye test at the age of eight or nine or so to the optometry clinics at the university where I sort of worked and thought I had some colleagues there who'd be able to sort of manage the eye test quite well, but they were terrible. Now it was just a complete disaster. It was just a complete disaster. You know, Miles would want to go up and down the chair and wouldn't sit still. No, we'll put the glasses on and you know, they, they want to put the drops in his eyes and they put the drops in his eyes. And I was like, don't put the drops in his eyes. Don't put the drops in his eyes. No. And so, of course, he's got the drops in his eyes. He can't see. And we're on the 19 bus going home. And of course, he's full of tears because he doesn't, he can't understand where his vision's gone. He's sort of crying out. You know, he likes to count the numbers down on the bus as we go home and he knows and he can't see the numbers. And he's just a mess. And I realised then, as a parent, it's like, this, this, this has got to change. So I started working in sort of trying to sort of educate optometrists as well about how to approach a child with with ASD in the consulting room and, and did some guidelines and stuff like that. So that was, that was I guess, the, the early years. And, you know, there was a lot of support I had, I think, from a guy called Deborah Bowler, who was at the university where I was working. He had an autism research lab. And I went to see Dermot and said, look, my son's got autism. What does it mean? And he was working in adults. And he was um, really a bit of a godsend because he said, look, Paul, things get better. You know, it's, every, every phase of life is hard. You know, you, it's going to be hard in, in, their fight, in their preschool years and then they'll get to teenage years and then they'll get to adulthood and they're all going to bring different challenges. And you just need to um, have hope, but work on language communication, which we did. And <clears throat> and it gave a bit of a ray of sunshine there because at the time we were, we were, we were pretty down. Um, well, you went yeah. through, I mean, it just to kind of go back a step. I mean, with Miles, Miles went through the typical diagnostic process, it sounds like. And what you're looking at is is groundbreaking in, in the fact that you're hoping to bring different information, more information to the table. So what is it that you're that that maybe a family is going to learn or a clinician may learn by utilizing eye signals? or AI through the diagnostic process that's different than yeah. the psychological diagnostic assessment or neuropsych assessment? Yeah, well, I think the, the big thing, the big question I had as a parent was like, well, how how bad is it or, and, and what's the future? So it's this prognostic, it's a, it's a biological marker, like it's a physiological thing. It's not, oh, his language is on a two out of five scale or his, you know, his social reciprocation score is this score or that score. It's, mm -hmm. it's very... It's very abstract, and although you know the ADOS is very good, it's a standardised test. <clears throat> it does give you know normalised data, but as a parent, maybe it's you know, my scientific background, but I wanted a number. <laughs> I wanted yeah. I wanted to know, I wanted to know the cause or the reason. You know, it's not like perhaps diabetes or hypertension or something which you can measure and sort of monitor and 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 so that was sort of I think the the you know the attraction perhaps of an objective test. That taps into the retina, which is connected to the brain, which we know in other conditions, which affects the brain, has different signaling properties, and we you know, we thought that those different different properties would help us to categorise better or give some sort of indication as to what chemical may be imbalanced in 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 this particular individual. 
and no. give some sort of and gives I, I guess I guess that's sort of you know the, the question you have is what causes autism you know why why does my son have or daughter have autism what's the what's the biology behind this this condition and of course mm-hmm. the genetics is all out there the, there's no answer to what causes autism and I think that was sort of part of the question for me as well, well what's what's the main driver for Mars's behavior is it too much of this or not enough of this or which pathway is affected in a sense and that and that's i think what where the erg may help to give some assurance to parents as well it's like it's not their fault i think that's sort of that the question we all have is like you know why me why us what have, what do we what do we do wrong you know yeah. what's, what's 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 happened whereas if there's a perhaps oh it's because of you know there's a little bit too much of this or a little bit less of that then it perhaps makes it makes it makes that the condition perhaps more understandable for a parent as i guess not it's not you it's causing this it's their biology in a sense or their their physiology and that and that makes a lot of sense i mean it, it just looking at what you're describing there it's that it's giving more of a medical understanding to you know this is this is the causality are you also potentially looking at or is there future research that's looking at you know maybe there's some treatment ramifications that are come or maybe a clinician would look at putting more effort into these sorts of skill building or into this sort of medication path because they're seeing this through the ERG. Yeah, that's that, that was really the goal, that this would help with the management and diagnostic, you know, sort of categorization. Perhaps, you know, there are looking at the genetic studies now, there's lots of different sort of, there seem to be lots of different flavors of autism, lots of, you know, based on pathways and immune pathways and you know, we die get lost in as well and mm-hmm. and maybe this sort of you know the erg can help sort of at least help to to clarify some of those those categorizations so look this group of children are really going to benefit from this medication or this group of children don't don't even touch medication that's not going to help you or this mm-hmm. group of children again are, are going to get a bit better because it's actually the retina look the retinal signals look pretty normal and there's a good prognosis or there's a retinal signals are really bad and you know maybe we need to put more effort into into the communication really so you know give give you more support those those sort of things uh, no and that and that that makes i mean just it gives hope to being able to say you know we can we can focus our care better and that we can hopefully expedite our care models to be able to be more efficient in what we're trying to be able to do to empower the kids or the yeah, yeah. Or and I think it's also I think I guess it also has, has gives that sort of marker that you can measure like blood pressure. You can is are things getting better by doing this? You know, are things changing in the in the, in this in the balance of the the neurotransmitters in the brain? Perhaps are they are they, are they having some effects that we can detect in the retina quite easily without doing a brain scan mm-hmm. or an EEG or you know those, those those sort of things? So that's perhaps the the, the attraction, party attraction, to to doing this sort of study. So if we start at the very beginning and kind of work our way forward and look at the diagnostic process alone, is this something that you're looking at diagnostics? Could potentially start earlier or i mean is this something that it still would be we're we're looking at 18 months as this the starting point uh, and what what do what's the start what where do we start with the yeah that would that's that, that that's the idea i mean i i guess you know i dream one day i many children you have the neonatal screening where they do the hearing test yeah. and it'd be great to do the eye test as well the eye screen as well and say oh look you know the hearing is good but the retina is also good and or whatever and so that that that, that would be the idea and, and in theory it, it's possible we haven't got to those younger 
children yet. That's for future studies. But in theory, you, you can record an ERG in very young children when they're sleeping or when they're breastfeeding or so forth. And that's where I think, you know, once they get to the age of two, three, four, five, they're a little bit harder to to test. So it's sort of looking at that sort of at the at the neonatal age would would be the you know the the pathway and and bringing it in as part of that neuro screen, I guess for all children, along just along with a hearing screen, you do a nice screen, you know, you do an ERG, you do an, an auditory test as well. And I think that would be the um you know that's what we're hoping to get to. And and I mean you had mentioned that there were ethical concerns back in the eighties about this, but I mean to calm people's fears i mean a lot of those things have been solved for yeah it's now a lot of, it's now a lot easier to do the test i mean the i guess we have to wait for the technological advances and a company called lkc technologies based in the us developed a handheld device called the red Aval, which uses a sticker electrode on the cheek which means that, and you don't need to use eye drops, so it measures the pupil diameter, so we don't need to dilate the pupil. So no drops, nothing on the eye. Uh, portable, do it in your office, do it in anywhere you like, you know, not a not a not not a very invasive invasive. And that really enabled us then to to do this for the further studies with the children. And it was really Ed's help in the end who sort of really helped because I sort of I I'd, I'd met Ed at at, at Infar once in Boston, although I don't think he recognised me, <laughs> but I was sort of like in awe of Edward Burke. And, and we published the adult study and I thought, oh, look, you know, let me send this off to, you know, I couldn't find Ed's email address because he'd retired. And so I, I think I, I sent it to his, to an Ari Ritbo, which I assume might've been his daughter, but I, I think it turned out to be his ex-wife or something anyway, but she was at Yale. <laughs> and I, I sent paper off to Ari and, and, and he said, oh, you know, you, you might be writers of Mr. Ritbo, um, you know, you might be interested in this study that he, uh, we just sort of replicated. And I heard nothing. And at that stage, we moved back to Australia. I sort of had a job here in Australia, left left the UK. And I was sitting in my desk one day and I got this phone call and I was like, hey, Paul, it's Gridfo here. How are you? <laughs> it's like, oh, Ed, how are you? He said, yeah, man, I got your paper. Really cool stuff. Like I've got some money at UCLA. Let's do a study. And, you know, the, Ed's 88 at this stage. But I'm like, yeah, Ed, let's do the study. So it sort of gave him a lot of, um, he really drove the next phase of the study. And I think it was part of his, it was nice for him to see some of the culmination of his early work sort of being replicated and repeated and expanded. And that was always his dream. You know, he was quite a you know, visionary guy to sort of say, you know, we want to use this ERG to help diagnose and to understand autism more. And, you know, and, and so from 1988 to 2016, there was just this dead space. If you look at PubMed, there's no publications in the field. That that we started. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then, and then we started to, you know, to get stuff going. And so I sort of, you know, I sort of feel a little bit carrying on the baton from Ed's, Ed's you know, pioneering work to try and sort of, you know, answer those questions. That's that sort of drives some of the the research as well and so yeah so so moving on now we've we've really expanded the the potential of the of the of the electroretinogram and so i guess to put simply what we've been doing i guess if you think of the electroretinogram a bit like the electrocardiogram it's like a, it measures the electrical signals of the of the eye rather than the heart so i guess it's the heartbeat of the of the eye if you like you could say and and you know we have when we look at the ERG on a very simple level, you could say, well, the you categorize 
ERGs based on on particular think like bit of like a song. It, is it sort of R and B or is it classical or is it jazz or whatever? <clears throat> and they're very sort of broad broad groups that you can put put things into. And and when we just do those sort of very broad categorizations, looking at the peaks and the troughs of the of the signal, we can't we we can sort of classify the groups quite well. But it's when you go into sort of the, the the analysis of the of the signal, you know, what are the what are the frequencies? What's the high frequency? What's the low frequency? What's the beat? What's the rhythm? What's the tempo? And that's really what we're doing with the signal analysis. We're sort of really pulling apart the song, if you like, the the signal from the retina, and 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 looking at the what the structure, if you like, and and that's where the 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 excitement, I guess, is coming from. Now we can start to really sort of untangle very small changes in the signal in these children with ASD or children with ADHD. And then, you know, the third group, the the when when we were doing the study with with Ed, we, we were recruiting children with ASD, and well, of course, but some of the children would turn up and they'd have ASD. Oh, and they've also got a bit of ADHD as well, the parent would say. He was like, oh, well, don't worry about that. You know, we'll, I'm sure it won't have any effect. <laughs> and, I, and I remember it, you know, at the time when you know, I was diagnosed, oh, he's got ASD, but there's, and there's a little bit of ADHD in there. I'm like, well, what's this ADHD stuff? I don't know. <laughs> Great. He's got a bit of ADHD as well. Anyway, so, but we started to notice that these children with this little bit of ADHD, this, you know, other thing, they were behaving quite differently to the children just with the ASD diagnosis. And so we thought, oh, well, maybe there's something in the ADHD group as well. We, you know, we hadn't really thought about that. So so now we looked a little bit at children just with ADHD and then you know, COVID came and we sort of stopped. But we found out the children with ADHD had a very altered signal to the children with ASD and the children with ASD plus ADHD, they were somewhere in between. So it was mm. sort of this sort of this, this sort of spectrum of signals that we that we were finding in these three populations and so the question so what we're looking at now is you know is children with asd asd plus that little bit of adhd and children with the with the adhd diagnosis to try and sort of um see if we can which we think we can sort of sort of you know pass out these these, these three groups and that's where the ai comes in you know to help us with the with deciding which signal characteristic belongs to to which group and so mm-hmm. sort of combining that sort of the ai plus that deeper signal analysis looking at the tempo and the frequencies and stuff that we can do in the waveforms building that into a, a computer program yeah into a testing tool for a clinician that can say do the test ping here's the the likelihood of the probability of your child being in this group and how and how severe and going back to that severity you know where do they fall in this in this pool of data that we have, you know, what what does it mean to the parent, and, and how then, what might be then be the best way to to manage that? And so, we're we're sort of pushing again with the University of Connecticut with with um Hugo's group there that with bioengineering, we're sort of pushing now to develop a new device, if you like, which will run off a smartphone, which will do all the compute the calculations, so that the smartphone will run the device, which is sort of like a pair of glasses, which will measure the signal. And then the clinician or the parent or the psychologist or the school teacher or the nurse or kindergarten teacher, anybody can sort of you know do this sort of test and the parent perhaps could do that at home and sort of monitor, monitor things as well. That's so that's, you know, that's, yeah, I mean, so it's, the value of this is just sounds astounding. I mean, and just to have that much information and to be able to continuously build upon it, because it sounds like you, once you start storing this data, 
is that now you have computer learning. You can start answering more and more questions through it because it, it sounds like the eye is capturing a lot more information than what we're able to extract right now. Is it is it a matter of we need more participants to be able to kind of build a larger database? Is it a matter of we need somebody to take this sort of technology to market, to be able to bring it to clinicians, to hospitals, to where where's the block? Yeah, well, they're 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 the next steps. I don't think they're blocks, but where we can we can we we'd love to have a, someone to come online and help to. We're building a prototype. We'll have a prototype to test in sort of mid middle of the year or so, and so <laughs> then it's a case of then, you know, getting yeah, looking at industry partners and and trying to sort of you know develop it and get a patent and produce it and then and then get a large clinical you know, multi-center clinical trial because that's always the thing is like well populations are all different the diagnostic standards although they're similar or very standardized there's perhaps some 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 variation i guess the other important and new thing that i've been working on well with a group in in germany at siemens ai you know there'll be in the media about how ai is destroying the world or whatever but i think i see i see this really sort of positive and useful thing and and some colleagues in Germany, they've been sort of generating fake ERG signals. So based on the population signals, the ERGs that we have, they can use AI to synthetically, I guess it's deep fake making, making. I've, I've just started sort of showing me some of the data and, and I can't tell the difference between a fake ERG from an autistic kid from a real one. So, you know, we can generate more data to use in analysis based on real data and so there's put there's a potential to sort of to 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 push ai even further and to increase our sample through the generation of synthetic or artificial signals as well but it's obviously nothing but 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 not, 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 nothing beats a real clinical population but it's sort of it but it, it helps the machine learning it helps the computer understand it's like well we can you have two thousand signals we can give you two and a half thousand and when you're talking to when you're talking to a a parent, because you went through this process, that I mean, not you didn't have any of this opportunity when you went through it with Miles, but talking to a parent, talking to a clinician, um, talking to researchers, I, I would imagine it's different stories. And I'd like to hear kind of where the benefit is for each of these populations so that they can be on board with understanding how they can contribute. So when you're talking to parents who are trying to figure out, you know, why is it that this would be where I would want to put my time, energy, and resources. What what is the story that that they need to hear to be able to understand? You know, this is this is worth my my efforts. Yeah, I think it's the it's the, it's the it's the question of you know why why and what's going to happen. You know, I sort of look at Miles now. I look back to what he was like in his early years, and now he's he's on his Xbox and he talks a bit. He's still very yeah, at home, but you know the, the the one thing I remember from from a woman called Gillian Baird because we were being a a, a doubting Thomas parent. I got a second opinion from from Gillian Baird, who was sort of an expert in in autism, and she and she great advice to me was don't don't ever don't ever underestimate him, and I think that's probably sort of what I took home. And even though things look bad now, you know you don't underestimate their potential or his potential or what what's going to happen what, what what they can become and i think you know the erg is going to help perhaps to give some certainty to that 
there is potential here. I think that there is a cause and an, and an effect, and and we can monitor and we can program and we can we can see how this will change in the future. And I think for parents, the other important thing I think is for parents. There's so many parents I saw obviously have come in with one child and then you know, they get diagnosed at three or four months and then have another child and then the second child has autism and it's not too late. But it's like so it would be it would be it would be nice I think to have a parent if they have a newborn child or a younger child, the second one to have you know you have one with autism or this is a second one kind of clear or not clear or whatever and so that that would sort of have perhaps help so interventions can be brought earlier to perhaps you know the the second or third child in in, in the family as well so that's that's sort of another aspect to, to to the testing not only for the the child that might be affected absolutely i think for a lot of parents it's just understanding creates you know a compassion intention it, it creates some of that idea of you know this is just part of a journey but i now understand my journey yeah. how about for the clinician i mean you you look at precision medicine right now really taking taking a path and when you were talking about adhd versus autism and maybe even creating a differentiation through some of this understanding is that it probably has something to do with some of the psychopharmaceutical direction that you might have with some of this is there is there benefits that maybe researcher physicians would be looking at saying you know yeah i I should probably be supporting or investing more into something like this because this is going to lead to some really wonderful results in the future for me yeah well certainly certainly may help help with drug targeting i guess because we can sort of the retina is a very because you could think of the retina as a very simplified model of the brain it has neurons it has the same chemical signals and if we and from the the pattern of the erg we can sort of tell which 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 chemicals are aren't working or imbalanced if you like and so that gives a target for the for the medication and also perhaps for the for the dosing as well so you know say well how much drugs should i be using well okay do the erg is the signal normalizing stabilizing is do you need more do you need less those, those, those sort of things would would sort of help. I think they work with the management. I guess that therapeutic management and and for parents to say, well, you know, am I am I doing too much? Am I not doing enough? You know, what do I? Because you know, you know medication is always sort of the question. I guess parents need to ask. It's like, you know, is this good for my child, or what are the long term effects? And you know, <laughs> those, those sort of questions. And I think just having the you know the ERG in your pocket, I call it. You know, the smartphone in your pocket, you can just pull out and show your parents. Say, look. Here's a normal signal. Here's your child. They're, they're clearly a different. There's a, there's a there is a problem, and I think that perhaps again for parents who may be confused or doubt the diagnosis. And I think perhaps it wasn't necessarily in our case, but I can imagine you know perhaps parents you know blaming the other one perhaps, but it's actually no one's fault. It's that sort of it's it's fault it's fault free. It's like it is mm-hmm. just the way it is. You know, the, but this is the this is the biology. It's not anyone's or anything you've done that's 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 caused this outcome you know you just gotta you know you're on a different journey yeah. <laughs> yeah and that and that makes i mean it it makes it so that you can almost take that next step and start start kind of that continuity onto the journey as you described a lot yeah, easier versus right. being stuck in that where do i go and almost going in this circular path of I'm going to I'm going to hover here until I have certainty and that leaves me not really understanding, you know, what's going to help make my life better or help empower my child to feel more comfortable or to be able to engage in more of what they're hoping to be able to accomplish in their lives and I think that yeah. that that's important. 
I think I think that acceptance is the important step. You know, that's sort of like I because we didn't understand why. You know, what what is it? What does it mean? Again, you know, what does it mean? What's what's going to happen? What's what's causing this difference? Why mm-hmm. why us? But I think having that sort of and so for us having a you know a a biological marker, something that you could sort of you know look at and go, okay, I see there's a difference. I understand now why things things are the way they are a, a little bit. Might not like it necessarily, but I understand it. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, where can people follow along with with what's coming out in this technology? What resources are available? How I can learn more and dive deeper into what what this actually means? Because we're on a we're on a thirty minute podcast. Is that we're not going to everything that could be going that could be describing all the benefits? Where can people turn? Yeah, well, we're just setting up a website now called retinalbiomarkers.com, and that should be live in the next day or two. And so people could subscribe to the website and leave their details, and we'll sort of send updates to anybody that's interested in, you know, following following our work. And if we get research projects going in the US, or in Australia, the UK, Europe, there are sort of main main sites. Then you know, we'd love to have everybody involved with um with developing things further and helping the lives of not only the children, but also the parents. I think parents, families, the whole, under, and you know, it's not just the parents, it's the grandparents, it's the cousins, it's you know, the whole, everyone's involved once the child has has has, has the diagnosis to, to support that child. So we want to get everybody involved if we can. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today, Paul, and for the work and passion that you have, because you took something that and basically stopped in the research field. Like you said, there's a black hole. And you rejuvenated it. And now it has this momentum where it's going to empower so many people in the future. And I encourage folks to read more about it, invest some of their time and resources to really understand and and hopefully be able to build upon the technology that's out there. Yep. Thank you so much. I'm glad to share. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.